Amen. You may be seated. You can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, we're looking at the second half of this chapter, verses 22 through 38. We'll be finishing it out. This is our fifth week uh, in this chapter. We've really broken it down more than is probably typical of working their way, uh, any pastor working their way through this um, prayer. But I, I thought it would be helpful to consider the various components that we find. And as they begin to sort of repeat themselves, those components again, it's not like they got all their adoration out of the way and then they stopped and then they moved on to, you know, confessing and then they stopped confessing and then they moved on to Thanksgiving and then they stopped doing that. That's not what you find here. That's it's kind of going back and forth. So we're really going to find the same themes revisited again from verses 22 through 38. And um, but I think it, it's helpful to see those various components and to really learn how to pray as we uh, as we sit under God's word teaching us. And there's, a, there's some good books that I would recommend you to get on prayer, and I've mentioned them before, but one that I want to quote from uh, at the beginning here is this book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul. It was a, a call, it was just a call to spiritual reformation. Uh, it's been retitled and kind of a, a new edition printed a couple years ago called Praying with Paul. Um, but in the very beginning, in the preface, D.A. Carson says this, I doubt if there's any Christian who has not sometimes found it difficult to pray. In itself, this is neither surprising nor depressing. It's not surprising because we are still pilgrims with many lessons to learn. It's not depressing because struggling with such matters is part of the way we learn. What is both surprising and depressing is the sheer prayerlessness that characterizes so much of the Western church. It is surprising because it's out of step with the Bible, which portrays what Christian living should be. It's depressing because it frequently coexists with abounding Christian activity that somehow seems hollow, frivolous, and superficial. Scarcely less disturbing is the enthusiastic praying in some circles that overflow with emotional release, but is utterly uncontrolled by any thoughtful reflection on the prayers of Scripture. I know this is a lengthy quote, but just a little bit more. I wish I could say I always avoid these pitfalls. The truth is that I am part of what I condemn. But if we are to make any headway in reforming our personal and corporate praying, then we shall have to begin by listening afresh to Scripture and seeking God's help in understanding how to apply Scripture to our lives, our homes, and our churches. So that's really the goal of this chapter, in my opinion. It's to teach us how to pray and how we might reform our prayers according to his word, that we would do so in a way that honors and glorifies the one to whom we are praying. Um, upon, you'll remember this is really just following shortly after they've completed the walls. When we think of Nehemiah, we think of the, the building project. The fact that they, they spent all this time devoted to securing the city. But really what that does is then just establishes them in that geography, in that region, 
where they can now begin to dedicate their lives to God in worship. And so they begin to do so, right? They've they spent extensive time studying God's word. They finish the wall, and then they open God's word, and they just want to read it and study it together. And, and they, they spend time praying, right? They, they celebrate joyfully a feast of booths together, all the families gathering together and celebrating. And then just a few days after that week-long celebration where every day of the feast included a, a scripture reading, they, they gather together to confess their sin corporately, right? To, within just a few days, it's like they can't stop. They, they want to keep gathering together. They want to keep studying God's word. They want to keep lifting their hearts to God in prayer. They're just burdened, right, with a, with a spiritual revival. They've, they're experiencing spiritual reformation. They're deeply concerned for the state of their relationship with God. And so as we walked through this prayer, and as we'll continue to do so this morning, we see just it's not a formulaic prayer. Uh, it's filled with a, a mixture of adoration, confession, gratitude, humility. Uh, they, if they're not rehearsing God's faithfulness, they're acknowledging the rebellion of their ancestors, confessing their own sins. And so they, they faced a, a critical dilemma that all of us, must answer. Right, this question, how do we escape a cycle of repeated rebellion? How do we escape a cycle of repeated rebellion? What prevents us from falling into the same patterns that we've seen in our past from our ancestors long, long ago dead? Right? How, do we, how do we change that cycle? How do we change that pattern? I think what we'll find here is that our covenant-keeping God supplies and secures everything we need to, to glorify him. That's what this prayer teaches us, that we have a covenant-keeping God who supplies and secures everything we need to glorify him. So before we read this second half of chapter 9, let's ask the Lord for his help. And understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And once again, we come to you dependent upon you to open your word to us, to open our hearts to your word, that we would be prepared to receive uh, the food that you have for us this morning. We pray that our hearts would be softened, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. We would honor you in the way we apply your word to our lives. And we can think about it from the, the personal aspect of our, our own personal prayers, as well in our homes as we pray together with our families. And when we gather together corporately, Lord, we want to experience the kind of reformation that this community and Nehemiah, that Nehemiah and Ezra are leading, that, that this community experienced as they pour their hearts out to you in prayer. Lord, may we do the same. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me, Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. And you gave them, again, we're picking up in the middle of a, of a prayer, 
and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance, So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he will live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them. Or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, that you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in your own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress because of all this. We make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, our first point in your outline following along is 
Delight in God's reliable provision. Delight in God's reliable provision. It's one of the things we see, a theme we find in this prayer, and especially in this section here, as they are recognizing that God has given them great blessings, right? Under the leadership of Moses, God rescued Israel from Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. You can see in Numbers chapter 21, verses 21 through 35, it records the two occasions that are mentioned here in verse 22. When Moses sought permission to pass through the Amorite lands of Sihon and Og, their kings would not allow it. And so they decided to gather their armies against Israel. And in each case, Israel was victorious and took possession of the land. And so God is giving them the promise that he gave them, right? He's, he's giving them the land. He's handing, them, ha- handing it over to them. And then while in Egypt, uh, so going backwards a little bit in time here, th- he talks about how God is multiplying their number. God begins doing so there. In, in Egypt, they, they reach such a level that, that Pharaoh forced them into slavery. And you can re- remember Joseph uh, rose to power in Egypt, and then Pharaoh supplied a portion of the land to his family, which had, had numbered at that point 70 people. So 70 Israelites living in Egypt with this portion of land, but they've continued to grow. So that 430 years later, God rescues a people who numbered somewhere close to 2.4 million. And so God brought them into the promised land, subduing their enemies and giving them possession of a land that is rich in resources. And that's all detailed there in that opening or that, that paragraph there from 22 through 25. So we know that the, the Israelites, they, they grumbled. Throughout their time in the wilderness, they struggled to trust in the Lord, even though he had miraculously provided for their needs every day. And still, we can, we can somewhat understand their frustration. Right? We, we can understand that they are still not in their permanent resting place. They're not in their promised land. They're, they're, they're still having to occupy it. And they're still wandering around. In the wilderness, and so we can sympathize a bit with their grumbling, but their ingratitude within the promised land is is a little more confounding, right? It's it's confusing that even as they receive the benefits and blessings that God had promised to them, they've entered into the land, they've begun to occupy it, they're still filled with ingratitude. It says they enjoyed the blessings of fully furnished houses cisterns that were already hewn they had crops that were already producing harvests they could just go in and begin appreciating and enjoying the abundance that god had brought them into and they did so what's the problem they grew fat in prosperity but it only led to further rebellion that he's not mocking them there. They're growing fat means that they had plenty of supply. It's, it's, it's a term that oftentimes describes the rich in Scripture, in the ancient Near East, because they had an overabundance. But it only led them to rebel further. What could they have done differently? Uh, 
They delighted in the goodness that God had promised. Isn't that, like, that's our point, right? Delight in God's reliable provision. That's what they're doing. They're delighting. But they're missing something. Something's still lacking very clearly. Our dog is like this. Um, Earlier this week, I was watching as our daughter, Caitlin, was attempting to get her to, to lay down next to her. And I think she was reading a book or maybe doing a... You know, studying, doing a, an assignment and homework, and um, and she wanted the dog to kind of be there next to her so she could pet her, and she didn't want to stay next to her. So she went and got her a, a figure and brought it back, and she immediately just went to the door. She wanted to go outside and and be on her own. And so, you know, Caitlin leads her over to the center of the of the living room and lays her down and 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 just stay right here, you know, and 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 just. Enjoy your treat that I've just provided for you. And so Piper sort of reluctantly gives in, like, okay, I guess I'm not going to get to go outside with this thing. So she just kind of turns away. Like, if, if I got to stay here, at least I'm going to try to be as isolated as I can be within this context. I'm going to do my own thing. And she, she just wanted to be on her own. It was almost like she forgot who gave her the treat to begin with. She was completely engrossed in this treat that it didn't matter that Caitlin was there. It's possible to enjoy God's blessings without acknowledging or honoring him for the gift. Right? We, celebrate, we celebrate the gift, we enjoy the gift without honoring the giver. That's a common theme in our lives. I think there's a similar struggle for some here in California. It's, it's from a different angle, though, right? We get so worked up about politics or the cost of gas that we fail to appreciate any of the benefits. And God has blessed us with so much. We have a beautiful state with access to the ocean and mountains just a few hours away. We take for granted that we're basically just outside of Yosemite National Park. The Central Valley has one of the most productive agricultures in the world, provides more than half of the nation's fruit and nuts. And I know we can make jokes about that all day, but it, it's an incredible privilege. And if you lived anywhere else, you would crave what, what you have right now. Here's the point. It's, it's all too easy to forget God's blessings and to fail to show him gratitude. Whether, on the one hand, right, we begin to focus only upon what's lacking in our current circumstances, so that we begin to just be characterized by a critical spirit, only noticing the flaws and the problems that surround us, that has a way of shrinking our capacity to praise. And then on the flip side, we become so enamored with the gifts that we ignore the giver altogether. God's laws and his representatives become expendable and eventually forgotten, at least until the next crisis is faced. And so I want to say let's refrain from allowing a critical spirit to derail our joy while also acknowledging the one who brought that joy into our lives. 
Let's acknowledge God's provision for our church these past few years. I mean, I think back to the beginning when we were in our home. Some of you were there. Or the, the first place that we began, we began meeting in Old Town Clovis, the place that we were at for five years, sharing the facility. We've, we've come a long way since the beginning, and many of you have been there throughout this. And we've got this incredible building. In fact, much of the furnishings you're now sitting on were there when we moved in. We've certainly had to do some significant repairs, but we've been able to worship here largely without hindrance from the beginning. God has provided an incredible group of families, some of whom he is now sending to serve in other regions, and we'll be saying goodbye to them, and it's starting to become a reality as we just said goodbye to one family last week. Yesterday, in fact, they flew out. And we'll be saying goodbye to more. And it would be sad if we respond to that with either bitterness or some kind of um, lack of gratitude for what God has done. Right? We ought to rejoice with them in the kindness of God, that he is a reliable provider. And for that reason, we can expect him to sustain us as well. <clears throat> and so we can rejoice that God is at work. And so we should, we should praise God for his provision. And when we do so, it oftentimes helps us to see where we've gone astray. It brings us right back into this confession. Right, confessing your repeated rebellion. He's already, they've already spent time doing that. Now we see in verses 26 through 31, they come back to this idea of confessing rebellion, really a repeated rebellion. The, the Levites confess several examples, and I say Levites because back in verses 4 and 5, there's a list of names there that seems to be that those are the ones leading them in prayer corporately. And so they have... They're, they're showing Israel's rebellion in the past, <clears throat> how they had rejected God's law. The language there of, of, is really one of contempt. They cast God's law behind their back. They didn't want to see it, want anything to do with it. So they rejected God's law. They killed God's prophets. This is reiterated in the New Testament as well. They committed great blasphemies. They're, they're just in rebellion, in chaotic rebellion. And it's why God gave them into the hands of their enemies in judgment. He, he wanted them to suffer. But suffering is what caused them to then cry out to the Lord in prayer. which led to the Lord raising up saviors, which you read about in the book of Judges. This all follows a cycle that is repeated over and over in the book of Judges. If you were here, we, we preached through that, that series, and you saw that, that cycle, that really a, a paradigm of that cycle. You can read just briefly in J Judges 3, verses 7 through 11, dealing with uh, the first judge, Othniel. But then that's repeated over and over elaborated on with each other judge. 
but the land experienced rest as long as the judge was alive. But then once the judge died, Israel would return to their idolatry. In fact, it said oftentimes sinking lower than they were before the judge was brought, before the, God provided the judge. Again, you see this cycle. How could they have grown so corrupt so fast to the, just this downward spiral? That by the end of Joshua, they occupied the land. And in the following book of Judges, probably written just 50 years later, they commit adultery with every neighbor they interact with. The downward spiral is swift and vicious. Now, this is only shocking to those who have a low view of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and of our own tendencies. It does not take long at all to become addicted to an idol and for that addiction to turn your life upside down. I mentioned this quote from G.K. Bill last week, but it bears repeating. In his book, We Become What We Worship, he says, What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. And so rebellion against God reveals what we revere, reveals what we're living for. Whatever idol we set our heart upon is ruining us. The degree of ruination might be slow in some cases, or it might be super fast, as we just saw. But there's an alternative activity that begins the work of restoration. If we surround ourselves with those who revere God, who fill their minds with his word and enjoy deep fellowship together, we will restore what the idol has claimed. In other words, we will recover the eyes and the ears and the mouths that are now devoted to the Lord in worship. God continued to rescue them. That's what we find him doing. He is a faithful God who rescues them and warns them about their idolatry. But it never seemed to matter for very long. Despite their repeated rebellion, their repeated rejection of God and his word, God never destroyed them or forsook them. He he remained faithful. <clears throat> I, I'm trying to make sense of this and understand this. I, I was never good at, at baseball. And once I began hitting last in the lineup and subbing in for right field, I decided to focus on soccer instead. And um, recently I've been able to watch my, my son practice and, and some of your boys are, are practicing for baseball season for Babe Ruth and I've observed several attitudes among the kids at baseball practice. There are some who act like they can play every position flawlessly. They want the coach to put them on the mound, behind the plate, at shortstop, in center field, wherever. And they will assure the coach that they are the best on the team in those positions. And then there are players who are a bit more reluctant who admit their tendency to pull up too soon on the ground ball or misjudge the distance of a pop fly. 
And in my last season, I think I was this third type who just gave up. And I, I told myself, I, I wouldn't be able to figure it out. There's guys that are so much better than me, I could never catch up. They've got this massive head start. And so I just threw away the, the equipment, right? Moved on. A good player recognizes their flaws and is eager to improve upon them. They acknowledge their flaws. They acknowledge their weaknesses. And they work on them. And they're confident that they can improve, that their coach can help them. You need to, to have both a healthy respect for the depth of your depravity as well as an appreciation for the value of community and the potential reformation that can result from becoming fully engaged in the gift that God has provided in his church. That's why regular, accountable, loving, gracious fellowship is so important. It's where the, the Levites turn to next in their, in their prayer. In verses 32 through 38, we participate in regular renewal. So delight in God's reliable provision. Confess your repeated rebellion and participate in regular renewal. For the first and only time in this prayer, the Levites make a request. They turn to supplication. They appeal for God to consider their hardship since the first Assyrian exile in verse 32. And their request is, is simple, but it's crucial. Essentially, they're, they're seeking the same treatment from God that their ancestors received. Will God continue to show them compassion as he was compassionate to their fathers? Will he continue to love them? Will he protect them, preserve them? The exile had entirely disrupted their lives. And so as they returned into the land, they're still dealing with the consequences of that. And God always acted according to his righteousness. They acknowledged that. He was just all along to do what he did. And he has always remained faithful even though now they say we, they're not saying they at this point, but we acted wickedly, verse 33. They don't portray this idolatry as merely a problem of past generations. We've moved on from that. We don't deal with that anymore. They recognize instead the solidarity of the sins of their fathers with their own generational sins. Their rebellion their rebellion is the same as our rebellion. And so they didn't rebel against or because of the exile. The exile wasn't what sparked their rebellion, but they had not honored God even when they enjoyed the richness of the land, even when they were enjoying all of the privileges and benefits of being in the promised land. And now they've returned to the land, they remain enslaved to the demands of the surrounding nations. It's, it's, they're, they're, they're experiencing the same struggles, the same trials. Such great portions of their, their produce and livestock go to the king who rules over them, so that it has left them destitute. 
They're like the prodigal, right? They, they squandered the wealth that they had. And so they've returned to the land, but they're prevented from enjoying the benefits of being there to, to the fullness. So they close this prayer with a written commitment of their covenant renewal. They're, they're, they're saying, God, will you continue to be compassionate toward us? Will you continue to show us mercy and grace? And this, this commitment that they make in verse 38 is really a, a transition point from the prayer to the list of names that comes in chapter 10. It's the list of those who signed this agreement. The people are not simply blaming their leaders or asking their leaders to deal with it, but they're taking full responsibility for their own sinful rebellion, and they're recommitting themselves to the law of God. It's similar, this covenant renewal ceremony, it's it's similar to what's recorded in Joshua 24, 1 Samuel 12. We see an important principle here. The covenant renewal takes place each time we gather for worship. We're nourished and equipped by God's word. We are united and encouraged through prayer. The sacraments and the songs renew our hearts. They refresh our minds to face the week ahead. And when we're regularly surrounded with saints who commit to support them, regardless of their circumstances, the body of Christ becomes stronger and healthier. There's something, you know, I'm 44 years old, and I know a thing or two about working out. Not not from experience, but because I've read several articles about it. (laughs) But I'm informed that if you're working out correctly, you're actually stretching and tearing your muscles. You're, you're causing damage. And so if that's done too hard, you can, you can have problems, right? But, but you have to do some damage within reason, and then you have to rest. You have to allow for that restoration to take place. And in fact, it's during that rest period that you're actually getting stronger. Your, your muscles are restoring to a, to, a, to a, they're strengthening so that the next time you have to actually add more weight in order to reduce the tear. Right? So, so that's, that's how you're getting stronger is your, your muscles are restoring them stronger. I, I think it's the same thing in our spiritual lives. Right? It's this time of restoration when we are getting stronger to face another difficult week ahead. Another difficult year, whatever it is, right? We belong, we belong to an era that sort of questions the value of the church, minimizes the value of even application in sermons. Right? We might nod our heads in agreement and even feel conviction for a brief moment, but we allow that to pass without any commitment, reflecting upon amusing ourselves to death by Neil Postman, Marva Dawn argues that television has habituated its watchers to a low information to action ratio. That people are accustomed to learning good ideas, even from sermons, and then doing nothing about them. Now, we've sort of been conditioned by this entertainment 
that we've received, this mindset, so that we even listen to sermons with that same mindset. That, that was funny. That was good. And that was helpful. And then we completely forget whatever we, we were listening to. The whole purpose of this renewing ceremony, renewing the covenant, is to recommit ourselves to this first commandment, to have no other gods before the one true God, to let go of our idols, to seek to walk in the direction that God has plotted out for us. But the pattern found in the prayer is important to follow, right? Obedience flows from gratitude. And so we delight in God's reliable provision because God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we can escape the cycle of repeated rebellion because Jesus Christ bore the penalty of that rebellion in our place as he died upon the cross. And with gratitude for God's redemptive provision, we are then sustained by regular participation in covenant renewal. We depend upon it. And so let us ask the Lord to strengthen our commitment to him even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this example that teaches us how to pray to you, a covenant-keeping God, to acknowledge your goodness and your, your reliable provision, that, that we have more than we could ever imagine. And yet, oftentimes, we take it for granted, we ignore the giver, delighting in the gift or we only see the flaws, we only see the, the, the frustrations of our circumstances and, and fail to give you praise and glory for the abundance of blessings that we have. Lord, help us to recognize, even as we delight in your goodness, to, to recognize our own tendency to follow after this world to fall back into the same patterns of sin that we've inherited from our fathers, to contribute in our own corrupt hearts. And Lord, help us to take seriously our participation in this covenant renewal or the privilege that we have of celebrating the Lord's Supper together is that very thing. It's a, it's a renewal of our commitment to you and a recognition of your commitment to us, that you have not withheld your only son from us. Lord, help us to rejoice in that and to go out with a, a different mindset as we respond in gratitude. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand our hymn of response is whatever my God ordains is right. Hymn number 231. <laughs>